Please take your Bibles and turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the cross, that the Son of God was slain for us. Would you direct our minds and hearts to your word now as we begin to understand what it means that the Son of God, the eternal Son of God, would be slain for us, God. Help us by your Spirit now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. They were there the whole time. I just didn't see them. It was Christmas morning, 1979-1980. As my family opened gifts, I wondered where my presents, the good presents, were. Of course, I got the obligatory presents, a new shirt or two, socks, maybe some pajamas, an orange or an apple in my stocking. What kid wants fruit for Christmas? But I wasn't interested in anything made of cotton or that grew on a tree. I wanted presents made of plastic. I wanted toys. But the only gifts that I had opened were made of cotton. And then it was over. Everyone had opened all of their gifts and there were no more presents. All I had was some socks, a few shirts, and some fruit. I was depressed to say the least. My brothers and my sister got cool toys and all I had was a package of tube socks with three stripes at the top, if you remember those. I was defeated like Ralphie from the movie A Christmas Story. Remember A Christmas Story? Remember Ralphie wanted the BB gun for Christmas? He wanted a Red Ryder carbine action, 200-shot range model air rifle with a compass in the stock and this thing which tells time. What was Ralphie told by every adult in his life? You'll shoot your eye out. But just like defeated Ralphie, who eventually got the Red Ryder BB gun on Christmas morning, my dad too said, Go look over there, son. So I moseyed over to a blanket in the corner and lifted it up. And underneath it was a pile of Star Wars action figures. Merry Christmas to eight-year-old me. The toys were there the whole time. I just didn't see them. Today we're going to look at how the early church began to put down on paper its understanding of the Trinity. We're going to look at one of the creeds and councils to help us begin to think rightly about the triune God. To think the way that Christians have always believed. That's what the creeds and the councils of church history do. They highlight and they make explicit what was already implicit. Just like the Star Wars toys for me that morning were hidden, they were there all along. The same is true in church history. What the church implicitly believed about the triune God was made explicit through the creeds and the councils of the church. So the councils and, uh, and the creeds of church history highlight and they make explicit what the church had already implicitly believed. The word creed comes from the Latin word credo, 
usually the first word of a creed, which is translated into English as I believe. Essentially then, a creed is a collection of doctrines or beliefs that a religious order or denomination hold as distinctive. What the creeds and the councils of church history do is draw circles around what we can and can't say about God. They give us parameters that we must stay within when we think about and discuss the triune God. The creeds and the councils of church history are fulfilling the biblical mandate to defend the faith, to keep the faith. And that's what exactly what Paul is going to encourage Timothy to do in our passage today, as he himself does. So look at 2 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 14. Here are the words of the triune God. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man or woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Our big idea that I want us to kind of hover over today's sermon like an umbrella is this. Good theology doesn't just happen. Good theology doesn't doesn't just happen. It takes work. It requires study. It requires deep thinking. Good theology just doesn't happen. You have to work hard and think deep to be a good theologian. The reality is this, Grace. Every single human being is a theologian. You're either a good one or a bad one. I want you to be good theologians who think rightly about the triune God. And that's what Paul wants of Timothy. Paul wants Timothy to keep the faith as he has kept the faith. Faith here is the doctrinal teachings that have been held by the church. It is not merely the act of believing. Now some of you may be thinking... This study on the Trinity, Pastor, is not that important to me. I'd rather discuss what's happening in my life. Get some basic how-tos to live the Christian life. Listen, if you haven't figured it out yet, I'm not into how-to preaching. Even though all the sermon titles so far in this series have begun with the words how-to. I did that on purpose. 
I'm not into how-to preaching that is man-centered and tries to give seven ways to be a good husband, three keys to being a great coworker, five steps to a better you. I want to preach and teach each week so that you leave understanding more of and loving more the triune God. Understand this, Grace. It is your duty, it is my duty as a believer, as a disciple of Jesus Christ to to study, to read, to memorize, to meditate on scriptures so that you can smell a bad rat of theology when it comes near. That's what Paul is challenging Timothy to do here. And by doing so, Paul is stressing that theology and doctrine are for every church member and not just for the pastors and the seminary professors. Theology and doctrine is for you and your spouse and your kids. It's for everyone who is in the covenant family of God. You are called to contend for the faith, as Jude says in his epistle. But you can't contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints unless you know and understand the faith. That's why Paul tells Timothy this. Continue in what you have learned and firmly believed. Knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. I said, if you came here today and you're thinking, I want to know what it takes to be a bad theologian, let me help you, okay? If you want to be a bad theologian, if you want to have a distorted, twisted, and perverted view of the triune God, then don't do what Paul is challenging Timothy to do here. Here's how you become a bad theologian. Oh, you want your how-tos? Here's some how-tos, okay? Don't continue in what you have learned. Don't be acquainted with the sacred writings. Don't be equipped for every good work. Don't endure sound teaching. Instead, develop itching ears and find teachers who tell you what you want to hear. Turn from listening to the truth. Wander off into myths. Don't fight the good fight. Don't finish the race. Don't keep the faith. Do those things and you'll be a bad theologian. Make no mistake about it, Grace. As we saw last week, every human being is made in the image of God, but every human being is also a theologian. You are either a good theologian or a bad one. You either think rightly about the triune God or you think wrongly. Every human being is a theologian. Every human being thinks something about God. It's important what we think because what we saw earlier in our series is that the most important thought that we will ever think is what we think when we think of God because it will determine every dimension of our life. Therefore, it seems like the logical conclusion would be that the church and all of its members who think that they can never understand theology must fight to keep the correct view of God in the forefront of their thinking. Why? Because inevitably, people will come along who have differing views of God than what Scripture has said, than what church history has held to. People will come along with views contrary to what the apostles and prophets have revealed to us in Scripture. Therefore, the church must always be striving for the faith that was once for all entrusted to us. 
This is exactly what happened in the early part of the 4th century. False teachers began promoting false teaching. And because church members did not know their Bible, they did not know their theology, they fell hook, line, and sinker for it. But there were some disciples who took their relationship with God seriously. And they studied the scriptures. They devoted themselves to understanding theology. And those people are the ones who stood up to contend For the faith that was once for all entrusted to the church. So let's go back in time to about 323 AD to a Bible church in Alexandria in Egypt. The pastor's name is Arius. He's preaching from the Bible. He's doing a series on the book of Proverbs. And he comes to Proverbs 8 where he is teaching on wisdom. Arius comes to Proverbs 8.22, which says, The Lord possessed, or the Lord created me at the beginning of his work, the first of his acts of old. And what the text is saying is that it was with wisdom that God created the world, or wisdom was there with God when he created this world. But the Hebrew word here for the Lord possessed wisdom, there are two roots. One, it could be possessed or created So Arius took the translation not as the Lord possessed me or the Lord had wisdom when he created the universe or it was with wisdom that the Lord created the universe. Arius took the other Hebrew root and made it say the Lord created me at the beginning of his work. The Lord created me. Wisdom. Wisdom, according to Arius, was the very first thing that God created based on Proverbs 8.22. So Arius starts thinking and the wheels in his head start spinning and he the lights go off and he's like there's other places in the bible that talk about wisdom so he turns to the new testament in first corinthians chapter 1 verses 24 and 30 which says christ the power of god and wisdom of god and because of him you are in christ jesus who became to us wisdom from god so arius puts these two verses together and he comes to the conclusion that since christ is the wisdom of god that's what paul says in first corinthians chapter one since christ is the wisdom of god and since proverbs eight says that wisdom was created first by god then jesus must have been the very first thing that god created Arius and his followers believed that Jesus was not eternally existent with God the Father, but that God the Father actually created Jesus. Arius believed that Jesus was the first creature, the first creation that God had made. Crazy, huh? I hope you think that's crazy because we don't believe that here at Grace. Guess where Arius came up with this idea? From the Bible. You see, you must be very careful because you can make the Bible sing any song you want to. People will use the Bible to justify all kinds of beliefs and all kinds of behavior. But here's the problem with Arius. He wasn't some backwoods preacher in a small country church. He wasn't some unknown preacher. Arius was extremely popular. He was a great Bible teacher. He was a great communicator. If you turned on your radio, he came on in between Chuck Swindoll and John MacArthur on the radio. Everybody knew who he was. He was preaching expositionally from the scripture. His books were popular. There's four services at his church. He had to have a policeman in the parking lot to direct traffic because so many people were flooding to his church on Sunday mornings. 
Darius was extremely popular. But just because you're preaching from the Bible, and just because you're extremely popular, and just because your church is growing, and just because the numbers of the members of your church keep escalating, and just because you have three or four services, doesn't mean that you're preaching the truth. It doesn't mean that you're doing what Paul instructs Timothy in our passage, preach the word. Just because a lot of people show up and you're preaching from the Bible doesn't mean you are preaching the truth. Go to the streets of Berlin in the 1930s and see thousands of people flock to see and hear one of the most engaging and charismatic speakers this world has ever known. Go to the streets of Berlin in the 1930s and see the multitudes flock to listen to Adolf Hitler. Just because you're popular and crowds show up does not mean you are preaching the truth. Just because Arius pastored a megachurch did not mean that he was a good theologian. Arius was a monotheist. He believed in one God But Arius only believed in one God, God the Father. Arius was not Trinitarian. Arius did not believe that there is one God, eternally existent in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. Arius believed that Jesus was the very first thing that God the Father made. Here's what he said. There was a time when the Son, Jesus, did not exist. The Son had a beginning, but God is without a beginning. Arius believed that Jesus did not exist in eternity past with God the Father and the Spirit. Arius believed that God the Father actually created or made or begat Jesus the Son. He believed that God did not become the Father until he had created Jesus the Son. And where did Arius get his idea? From the Bible. Be very careful what teachers, preachers you listen to, what books you read. Just because they use the Bible does not mean that it is true. Because you can make the Bible sing any song you want to. And so a division started sweeping through Constantine's empire at this time because Arius was getting very popular. He was going on tour and speaking and large crowds are showing up. They're having to buy their tickets through Ticketmaster and renting out these large arenas to listen to him speak. He's selling books. Some people were on board with Arius and others weren't. And then a bishop named Alexander, Bishop of Alexandria, brought forth a rebuttal of Arius' teaching. And this caused the divisions and separations to become wider in the church. Some people were on Arius' side. Some were on Alexander's. See, what Alexander was doing is what Paul was encouraging Timothy to do in our passage. Alexander believed that good theology doesn't just happen. They believed that they were called to do what Paul encouraged Timothy to do, to reprove, correct, train, rebuke, and exhort. 
So Constantine called together the church's theologians and pastors and Christian thinkers to discuss Jesus, to discuss the Son's essence in his relationship to God the Father. And during the winter of 324 to 325 AD, the very first ecumenical council was called in Nicaea in modern-day Turkey to discuss the teachings of Arius. And after a period of discussion... They came to their conclusion. On June 19, 325 A.D., the Nicene Creed was composed. The Nicene Creed affirmed that Jesus, the Son, shared God the Father's nature and that the Son had always existed with God the Father and that Jesus was never created. The Nicene Creed made explicit what was already implicitly believed by the church. The church believed John 1, 1, that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. But the Nicene Creed made explicit what already the church believed implicitly. So here's what the Nicene Creed says. We believe in one God, Father, all-sovereign, maker of all things, seen and unseen, and in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, begotten from the Father as only begotten, that is, from the substance of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence, one in with the Father, through whom all things came into existence, the things in heaven and the things on earth, who because of men in our salvation came down and was incarnated, made man, suffered, and arose the third day, ascended into heaven, who comes to judge the living and the dead, and in one Holy Spirit. And to those who say there was once when he was not, that's Arius, they're talking about Arius here, they're calling him out. To those who say there was once when Jesus was not, or he was not before he was begotten, or He came into existence from nothing or who affirm that the Son of God is of another nature or substance or a creature or mutable or subject to change. Such ones the Catholic or universal and apostolic church pronounces accursed and separated from the church. The Nicene Creed was saying is that if you believe that there was a time when Jesus did not exist, then you can't call yourself a Christian. If you believe that Jesus isn't of the same essence or nature as God the Father, that he is eternal, then you cannot be a Christian. What the Nicene Creed did was to draw a circle around what we can and can't say about God. The Nicene Creed draws a circle about what was acceptable to believe about Jesus being God. Arius said that Jesus was created. What group believes that today? The Jehovah's Witnesses, they believe that Jesus is the first created being. They are wrong. Besides, God's name is not Jehovah. That's a whole nother sermon. God's name is Yahweh. Jehovah is not even in the Bible. It's not even a real name. Arius believed that Jesus was begotten, made, created by God. That's how Arius understood the word begotten. But to be begotten does not mean created or made. To be begotten means that the Son is from the same essence or nature as the Father. That he is the eternal God. My five children are from the same essence as me. I'm a human being, therefore... 
They are human beings. We share the same nature. They are begotten from me. Humans beget humans. Dogs beget dogs. Santa Marians who don't put barbecue sauce on their tri-tip beget Santa Marians who don't put barbecue on their tri-tip. I think the Trinity is easier to understand than that. From the South, we drown our meat in barbecue sauce. To be begotten means that you are from the same essence as the one who begat you. It means that you are of the exact nature as your father. Jesus is the same essence as the father. He is God just as Father. his father is God. He has the same nature as God the father because he is God too. Jesus did not become God's son in relationship to his father at his birth and incarnation. Contrary to what Arius was teaching, Jesus was always the son. For all of eternity past, Jesus was the eternal son of God. Arius was saying there was a time when he was not. Jesus has always been the son of his father. Interestingly, Interestingly, a few years ago, a very notable theologian and famous Bible teacher that all of you most likely know changed his views to express this, that Jesus was eternally the Son of the Father. John MacArthur used to believe that Jesus took the title Son at the time of his incarnation. He says this on his website. You can go to it, gracetoyou.org, gty.org, in answer to the question, is it true that John MacArthur has reversed his position on the eternal sonship of Christ? Here's his answer. Careful study and reflection have brought me to understand that Scripture does indeed present the relationship between God the Father and Christ the Son as an eternal father-son relationship. I no longer regard Christ's sonship as a role he assumed in his incarnation. I believe this is the sense scripture aims to convey when it speaks of the begetting of Christ by the Father. Christ is not a created being, John 1, 1 through 3. He had no beginning, but is as timeless as God himself. Therefore, the begetting mentioned in Psalm 2 and its cross-references has nothing to do with his origin, but it has everything to do with the fact that he is of the same essence as the Father. Expressions like eternal generation, only begotten son, and others pertaining to the filiation of Christ must all be understood in this sense. Scripture employs them to underscore the absolute oneness of essence between father and son. In other words, such expressions aren't intended to evoke the idea of procreation. They are meant to convey the truth about the essential oneness shared by the members of the Trinity. You can read all of it. There's more to it online. John, understand this. John MacArthur was not promoting heresy like Arius. Understand that, okay? He believed that Jesus was eternally existent with the Father. Arius did not believe that. MacArthur says, yes, Jesus was eternally existent with the Father, but what John MacArthur previous believed was that the title and the role, Son of God, became Jesus's when he humbled himself and became a, a human being. He now believes otherwise, that there was this eternal father-son relationship 
with Jesus and his Father. Now back to the battle for the eternality of the Son during Arius's day. Another man involved in fighting the heresy of Arius was Athanasius of Alexander. Athanasius replaced Alexander as bishop in 328 AD. He challenged Arius's view of Jesus the Son, but he also, more importantly probably in his writing against the Arians, challenged Arius's view of salvation. But Athanasius argued that Jesus was of the same nature as the Father. The Greek word that Athanasius used here is homoousios, from homo, same, and ousios, nature, homoousios, which indicated that Jesus Christ possessed the identical nature as the Father, that the Son of God is just like his Father, who is God. But some people at the Council of Nicaea and during this time proposed that we should say this, Christ is not homoousios, but homoiousios, from homoi, which means similar in ousios nature. They were wanting to suggest that Jesus was similar in nature to God the Father. And they said this should be sufficient. But some people wanted it the other way. So there was more divisions and debates. And so some people are saying, let's compromise. Let's not say that Jesus was the same nature as the Father. Let's say that he is similar nature. So there's this big debate over these two words. Hamausios, same nature. Hamoiousios, similar nature. Very big difference, even though they sound very similar. Did Jesus have the same nature as God the Father, or was he just similar in nature to God? Well, Athanasius prevailed over Arius, insisting that Jesus was of the same nature as God and not similar to him in nature. And as a result... At the Council of Nicaea, Arius was exiled along with many of his followers for teaching contrary to the Bible's teaching about the essence or nature of Jesus the Son. You see, the Council of Nicaea believed that good theology doesn't just happen. Good theology, Grace, doesn't just happen. It takes work. It takes study. That's Paul's point here in this section to Timothy's. You've got to work hard to study You've got to learn the scriptures. You've got to immerse yourselves in the scriptures because good theology doesn't just happen. You have to work hard and think deep to be a theologian. You have to look at words like homoousios and homoousios and think about what does it mean? Is Jesus, does he have the same nature as God the Father or does he have a similar nature? You have to work hard to be a good theologian. Good theologians defend good theology. They defend what they believe. And that's what we want to do here at Grace. And that's why we're doing a series on the Trinity. We want to contend and to fight for the Council of Nicaea's definition of the Trinity. That's why God gave the church pastors and teachers and elders. To teach them about God so they can be equipped for ministry. So that when a Jehovah's Witness knocks on your door and says that Jesus is similar in nature, that he was the first being created, you have enough theology and understanding of the nature and the essence of Jesus the Son to counteract what they are teaching. That's why we adhere to the creeds and the councils in church history. Or as one of my heroes, Dr. Jeff Bingham, says, this is, after all, 
what church leaders do. They explain to their congregations acceptable parameters within which they are to understand and interpret the Bible. They also point out unacceptable interpretations. Good theology doesn't just happen. Church leaders who care for their congregations don't allow unacceptable thinking about the Trinity to go unchecked. Church leaders must first be the church's theologians. Do the councils answer all of our questions about the Trinity? No. But they do give us boundaries within which we find acceptable interpretations of the scriptures about the Trinity. We may not have all the answers, but we know things we should say and believe, and we know views we shouldn't hold. And now, Grace, it is your duty to read the scriptures, to read books, to listen to sermons, to take classes that we offer in Grace Seminary so that you can effectively contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints, so that you can effectively defend the beliefs and doctrine and teachings that have been once for all entrusted to the saints. Why do you have a Bible in your hand? Because as Paul says, it is profitable for teaching for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness so that the man or woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Why do you have the Bible in your hand? So that you may do as Paul said, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, like when a Jehovah's Witness or a Mormon knock on your door so that you can reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Good theology doesn't just happen. It takes work. We're about to sing a song that is chock full of good theology. We're about to sing a gospel-dense song. Think about the words you're singing. Think about the truths. Think about how the gospel that Jesus lived the life we could never live, died the death that we all deserve, and God raised him from the dead to bring us to him. Think about how gospel-rich this song is. And maybe do some homework this week. And look up the words to this song before the throne of God. And maybe do some deep thinking. Maybe even get crazy and say, I'm going to find the words in this song, and I'm going to find scriptural proof for each of these lines so that I can be better equipped and love God more. Good theology doesn't just happen, Grace. It takes work to dig into God's word to know him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and the challenge to not wander off into myths, to study, to be equipped. Thank you for your spirit which and who is not just active in our generation, but he has been working from the very beginning to bring his church to glory. Thank you for your spirit who is working through Alexander and Athanasius, that they would stand up for the truth and point out wrong thinking about you. May we do the same with complete patience as we revel and delight in the triune God. Thank you for all that you are for us. 
in your son, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.